5, beginning in verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the order of worship. And um, it's the text I'll be preaching from, Deuteronomy 5, beginning in verse 22. Don't think it's a stretch to say that the most famous hymn for English-speaking Christians would be Amazing Grace. And uh, the most famous verse would be the first verse, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Uh, We always sing that one. We often sing the second verse. And the second verse of Amazing Grace starts off, and it's interesting too, because when when you've said something a lot, if you've used an expression a lot, or there's a song that you sing a lot, sometimes it's hard to really think about the content. You, You forget the content of the actual words out of familiarity. And we we may do this a lot with the second verse of Amazing Grace. The second verse starts, "'Twas grace." Now, time out. What is grace? That's the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And then it goes on to say, "'And grace my fears relieved.'" But let's not rush past the first part. The hymn writer says, it was the kindness, it was the mercy, the grace of God that taught my heart how to fear. Now, I said this at the beginning, but I I would say it now as we're moving toward the passage. When you think about what do I spiritually need, typically you don't think what I need is to learn how to rightly be afraid of God. And I want you to think about the context of this passage that we're about to read and look at. The context is, in Deuteronomy 5... Moses has just given a recap of the Ten Commandments. There's two places you find the Ten Commandments in the books of Moses. Exodus 20 is sort of the classic passage right after they come out. But it's, this is reviewed in Deuteronomy 5. And after the Ten Commandments are listed, this passage begins. And here's the thing. You've got these Israelites that Moses is talking to, and he's reviewing things. They're about to cross the Jordan River, go in to take the Promised Land. And as he's reviewing with them, he's saying, all right, so when that happened, who were you and what had happened? God had rescued you from slavery. When you could not rescue yourselves from this awful life you had. And then he had dispatched this Egyptian army, the superpower of the world that you could not beat, and then brought you to himself. And he begins not by telling you all the requirements. He begins by saying, I'm the Lord your God. You don't have to worry about that. I'm your God. You're my people. You've been freed from slavery. You would think this is when you should have been most secure. This is when you should have felt most secure. And when you read this passage, it becomes pretty quickly evident they feel very insecure. Uh, In fact, they feel traumatized. And here's what I'm wanting us to think about, that God manifesting Himself in a way that made them feel that way was grace. And that this is not just a grace that they needed, this is a grace that we need. That we need grace from God to learn how to fear Him. And this passage can help us. Deuteronomy 5, beginning in verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. 
And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we cannot make ourselves fear you rightly. But if there's a fear that we need that is appropriate and is even good for us, that moves us not away from you but towards you, please give it to us and please use your word even this morning, to that end. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a name that I've cited before up here, that, uh, the name of a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was it's actually a Welshman, and most of his ministry was in London. And uh, he, he passed away several decades ago, but still has had an impact on a lot of people through what he, what he wrote or uh, written editions of his sermons. But before he died, I think this was probably around the late 70s, maybe uh, 1980 or so, shortly before he died, Martin Lloyd-Jones was interviewed by Christianity Today magazine that's still around. And the guy that was interviewing Dr. Lloyd... And by the way, he was not a ministerial doctor. He had been a medical doctor and was converted and felt a very strong call to preach. And that's what he was the rest of his life, a preacher. But this, this person that was interviewing Lloyd-Jones asked him at the end of the interview, not knowing this would be the last time they ever did so, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, is there any last words you would give to our readers? And it was interesting what he said. He said, flee from the wrath to come. And, and this is so... He said that uh, as a seasoned 
older Christian man, with all the things he could have said, that's what he said. And there's something really unusual about that. And, and again, not, not to beat a dead horse, but we don't tend to think in terms of what I need is fear. And ironically, the fear of God in not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament is a huge valued thing. I mean, even when the Messiah is prophesied and the, and the Messiah shows up and people are talking about God fulfilling His promises, they'll even frame it in terms of, wow, this is going to secure the fear of the Lord. But this is something that we need. Uh, this is a text about God coming and manifesting Himself. What people see is not God. The fire itself is not God. We don't worship fire. It's God manifesting Himself in a way that people can see. And of all the ways He manifests Himself, He picks something very frightening. How could that be beneficial to us? That's what I want to think about this morning. So let's look at it this way. First off, the fire itself, the scary fire, and uh, then the dilemma, and then the solution. The fire, the dilemma, and then the solution. Now, the, the fire you get right in the first verse of the passage says, uh, Moses speaking to the people, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, and that's Mount Sinai, that's the mountain. To all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. Now, he mentions several realities that were going on when, when God manifested himself at Mount Sinai. And, you can, and if you look at the parallels of this in Exodus, you read about the same things, that there was darkness and gloom and thunder and a loud voice and a trumpet and fire and just thick, thick smoke like the smoke that comes out of a kiln. But the two that Moses keeps coming back to and the ones that he quotes them as being rattled by of all the different things that were going on is the voice and the fire that there is this voice that is speaking to them. And they know, without being told, this is the voice of God. But it's not just a disembodied voice. It's a voice that's coming out of this great fire that's come down on the mountain. Now, I feel like we've got to stop here for a second and say, when, we, when they talk about a fire at Mount Sinai, where our minds might go is just to a mental picture. Now, this is not everybody, because not everybody here is from a church background, but if you grew up around something like picture Bibles or story Bibles, or, you know, if you saw the 1950s Cecil B. DeMille movie, when you think about, all right, Mount Sinai and fire, at most, probably what you picture is something like a bonfire, a big one, but kind of more like a big, bright fire. And that's, that's not the way the text describes it. Over and This actually came up last week in our passage. Over and over, the adjective that's applied to this divine fire is consuming. Um, I, I learned something this past week just thinking about fire and God manifesting Himself that way. I learned something last week. I didn't know this. I had heard the term firestorm before. But I didn't know that that was something of a technical term. A firestorm 
is actually fairly rare. It's where a fire has become so massive and so hot and, and other factors have come together. I'm going to say just right. You don't want this to come together. But factors have come to, together just right so that this fire, essentially it creates its own weather system where it creates its own wind patterns. It, it uh, affects the levels of oxygen in the air. <clears throat> it's not just a big fire. It's a completely different animal. Uh, one firestorm that I read about this past week was from World War II. It was, this is from the summer of 1943. And I'd heard about this before. I'd never read about it. Late July, uh, after the Allied forces had been bombing a German city, Hamburg, uh, multiple times, they decided to just let Hamburg have it for different strategic reasons. And so, late July, they unleashed a massive bombardment of incendiary bombs on Hamburg. And it just so happened that because of the wind and the weather and the layout of the city and where the bombs landed, that it became so intense that it created a firestorm. And reading these eyewitness accounts was incredible. There were multi that one lady was writing, I think, in the in the 90s, because she said now, 50 years later, after this happened, she had probably been in her teens or 20s uh, when when she went through this. She said her peers who survived this half a century later could hardly bring themselves to talk about it because of the trauma. Multiple eyewitnesses said that winds reached a speed of 150 miles an hour created by the storm. That's hurricane wind. Multiple eyewitnesses said people who were running for their lives because of the influx of air into the storm were lifted up like leaves and pulled into the fire and consumed. Nothing like it. Now that is what the Israelites are seeing not a bonfire. And it traumatized them. And over and over and over, you get this in the Scriptures, is this depiction of this consuming fire, the manifestation of the glory of God as a consuming fire. What is God communicating, himself, uh, uh, communicating about Himself when He does this? Because He does it more than once. Let's ask the question another way. What does this fire consume? Because it doesn't consume the mountain. And you know, our call to worship said He can. He can melt the mountain like wax if He wants to. So what does the consuming fire consume? The, the best window I know into answering that question is uh, a couple of books back in Leviticus. There's, there's an episode at the end of Leviticus 9 where Moses has just commissioned Aaron his brother, is the first high priest. You know, there's the normal priests and there's the one high priest. Moses' brother Aaron is the first high priest. And so they kind of are doing their thing for the first time, offering the burnt offering for the first time the way God said to do it. And it says that then they bless the people. And so, you know, God gave them the words to say. It's what I've said. A lot of our worship services, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord turned His face towards you and give you peace. And as soon, boom, as they said that, or as the high priest said that, it says that fire went out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. 
Now, keep those words in mind. Fire went out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. Just a few verses later, at the beginning of Leviticus 10, it says that Aaron's sons, Moses' nephews, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests. And they decided to, to offer fire as an offering to the Lord. In King James, it says, strange fire. It was unauthorized. I just think maybe they just kind of wanted to... That, This was a cool way to worship God, they thought. And so they offered it, and the text says that fire went out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. It's an exact parallel. What is that telling us? This fire is not an indiscriminate fire. Firestorms, you know, they burn anything flammable. This fire is a discriminate fire. What does it burn? What does it consume? Guilt. And that can go one of two ways. It can either be actually the guilty party or something that's been credited with the guilt. The burnt offering is something credited with the guilt. That's where the divine consumption goes. Uh, In the sad case of Nadab and Abihu, their guilt is consumed. And you can't consume abstract guilt, so it consumes the guilty. Now, that's a dilemma. If that's what God's consuming fire is like, and if you want to see how the people, they got that point immediately, look at how they understand the dilemma all of a sudden. Look in verse uh, 24. Moses, he's rehashing their words back to them. He says, And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire this day. We have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume what? Us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. So what is God's take on that? Does God, you know, on the heels of that say, no, listen, easy. You're getting it all wrong. What does God say after they say that? Look in verse 28. The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. This fire is a divine fire. Who can listen to this without dying? This fire will burn us. And God says, you're right. Now, before we go to this last point, here's what I want to say to us. The gospel is for guilty. The guilty. The good news is good news for guilty people. The good news is not going to be that good to any of us if this dilemma doesn't get in our bones at some felt level. I mean, th- think about it this way. When, when you look at all the problems in the world, and l- let's say that we say something to ourselves like, man, look at, look at all the hate in the world. Hate in workplaces or nations going to war. I mean, all levels of hate. There's so much hate in the world. If God is really as loving as He says He is, as the Bible says He is, 
And if God is as powerful as He says He is, and the Bible says He is, then why doesn't He do something about all the hate in the world? It's kind of like one of those classic late-night dorm room discussions, you know, or apartment or whatever. But here's the dilemma. For God to do something about the hate in the world, hate is not like a substance. It's not like an oil spill that you clean. Hate is this thing that's, generate, that's generated by hateful people. To eradicate the world of hatred would be to eradicate those who engage in hating. And that should be very sobering to all of us. Because I fall into it all the time. And you fall into it all the time. For God to really do what we're talking about, I wish God would, in His power and in His care about the earth and people being okay, I wish He would do something about the hate. What if what that actually means, whether we realize it or not, would be for the divine fire to consume us? And then there would be less hate. See, until that touches the heart... The thought of the divine fire being taken away from us is not going to mean much. It's not until you feel that I would deserve it and that you would deserve it. So what's the solution? And it's funny, there's a solution that the people come up with and then there's God's solution. Now, what's the solution that that the people come up with? Look, Look in verse 26. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fires we have and has still lived? And speaking to Moses, you go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. Here's the solution. This is completely traumatizing. You know, it's these elders and tribal leaders speaking on behalf of the people. Our people are crying. Everyone's nervous. We can't handle it. Moses, you go talk to him, and whatever he says to you, you tell us, and we'll do it. At least until a few days later, where we make a golden calf. And we bow down to it. And we pledge our allegiance to it. And we love it. And we dance before it. And murmur, and complain, and doubt that Yahweh exists. And speak disrespectfully of his servant, Moses. Whatever you say to do, we'll do it until then. That's not a solution. We're back to the dilemma. That God will be holy, holy, holy. And He is God. And we are not. And His justice and His wrath is not something He can flip off like a light switch and say, well, let's give that a pass. What's the real solution? I don't say this often. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 29. This is the consuming fire. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go back to the firestorm in Hamburg. If that firestorm could talk, what would it say? The firestorm in Hamburg would have said, I hate you. 
I hate you, Hamburg. I hate your citizens. I hate your buildings. I will destroy you all. And here's this consuming fire that the people are looking at. And the voice out of the midst of the firestorm says, I really want you to have a great life. But we still have the dilemma. He's a consuming fire, and a few days later, they're going to make an idol. You know, everything about the Exodus, the the Red Sea and the slavery in Egypt and coming out in the wilderness, this stuff comes up over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Over and over again in Psalms. They just rehashed it. It was just the defining event in their life. And I want to read you one little part from a psalm. This is Psalm 106. You don't have to turn there. But this song is rehashing what we're looking at. And listen to what it says. It says, They made a calf in Horeb, that's Sinai, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior. And by the way, that's exactly what we talked about last week, that idolatry is an act of forgetting. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Now, here's the last verse that I want you to hear. Therefore... He said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? Now, now connect the dots from that to this beautiful verse 31. Go tell us whatever he says, Moses. We'll do whatever God says. Lie. And so what does God say? Verse 31. Moses, you stand here by me. Isn't that great? You stand here by me. You'll stand in the breach. You're a sinner too, but I'm going to allow you to stand between my sinful people and my wrath. You'll be the go-between. That in Scripture is what is known as a mediator. But it wasn't enough. Moses dies. Moses doesn't even get to lead him across the Jordan River just to step a few steps into the promised land. He doesn't even get to do that. And so what does God do? Over a millennium later, He sends someone who is simultaneously... It took the church quite a while to get their minds around this, and we still don't have our minds totally around it. Someone who is 100% God, the consuming fire God, the God of Mount Sinai, and 100% man. And when he begins his ministry, he says, look, not one stroke of that law is going to disappear. Ever. And I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And so not only the years before then, but the years after that, he's the one Israelite that always did it right, who always kept the commands perfectly. And you know what the irony is? At the end of that, in the most definitive way, it did not go well for him. And even, there, even though on the cross there was not visible fire, the unseen fire of the wrath of God falls on him. 
consumes him. Why? So that, inasmuch as it fell on him for his people, for sins that he did not commit, that that divine fire would never fall on them. That if I'm going to drink this cup of the wrath of God, I'll drink it. I'll drink a cup that I don't deserve. I'll drink the cup with your name on it so that you can have the cup of blessing. You know how long it takes to drink that cup? Forever. I'll drink the cup. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And and here's what I want to end on, is to say this. I want to emphasize how we see Christ in this passage, both as consuming fire and as Israelite, keeping the law of God, and as mediator, standing in between God and man. But I want to say this. If If our God is the kind of God who can say to us, I want things to go well for you, And that doesn't just mean, so, don't lie. I want things to go well for you, so, don't commit adultery. But if we have a God who says, I want things to go well for you, so I will fall under my own wrath, so that you never have to, that should tell us something. That should tell us that when He commands our life, and He says, this this command, even if it's counterintuitive, this command, even if you don't want to do it, it is for your good, then we can believe Him that it is for our good. You may be seated here this morning and even be a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you may be having an affair. And it may feel for all the world, what God wants for me is to find the just deep, energizing fulfillment that I feel with this other person. And I would plead with you to hear God saying to you and saying to all of us, I want things to go well with you. And because I want things to go well with you, you shall not commit adultery. As we, as we pull in on April 15th, you may already be thinking about ways to have more income than you're actually going to report. And you may actually be doing that as a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it feels like, yeah, it may, if I have more discretionary income, I can give more to like ministry and the church and missions or whatever. Why does the government have to get everything? and you feel rationalized in that approach, I want you to hear what God is saying to us. You shall not bear false witness. I love you. Stop working seven days a week. I want the best for you. Put away your other gods. If something besides me gets the innermost core of who you are, your best energy, thoughts, gifts, money, time, put it away and come to me that it might go well with you. That's who God is. He wants us to obey His commands. We need to repent of how we are disobeying God and obey His commands. It's His grace and love. Let me end by saying this. I didn't tell you the whole story at the beginning on that Martin Lloyd-Jones interview. 
didn't withhold anything major, but well, kind of, kind of did. At the at the end of that interview, the guy asks him, um, Doctor Lord Jones, would you say any last thing to our readers? And he said, "Flee from the wrath to come." But he said one other thing. He said, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved." And that really is it. I mean, none of us can walk out of here and get things turned around the way we need to. Our hope is not our righteousness. Our hope is not our obedience. We need to believe in the mediator. But if our God will send a mediator for people who don't deserve it and say, that's how much I want it to go well with you, we can trust Him that He knows better than we do what we need. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, since your word says that repentance is not something that we generate out of our own strength, but turning to you, turning back to you, repenting is something that you give, then we as a room of sinners want to ask, would you give us repentance? Give us repentance for all these commands. Give us repentance for how we have loved other gods more than you. Give us repentance for coveting. Give us repentance that things that don't seem like a big deal to us are a big deal to you, and we go with our own instincts. Change our hearts. Cause us to walk in obedience. Above all, enable us to lean and rest on the Lord Jesus, the Mediator. We praise you in His name. Amen.